KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls is a nonprofit organization that is working to end the mass incarceration of women and girls. It is incredibly important and painstaking work they are doing, and we wanted to learn more about it. So we caught up with Dr. Jill McCorkle. She is the executive director of the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. She is also a professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University. So to start, for people that aren't familiar, just kind of tell me what the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls is all about. What's the work you do? So we're interested in two things, broadly speaking. The first is looking at wrongful conviction and wrongful sentence cases involving women. Women are about 10% of exonerees in this country. And um, what's notable about wrongful conviction cases for women is that Overwhelmingly, those cases involve a no-crime conviction, meaning that after the fact, somebody puts it together that no crime actually happened. And so we've noticed a number of uh, gender-specific patterns with respect to uh, malicious prosecution, police misconduct. And so we're there's just not a lot of resources that are dedicated to looking at women's cases. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is provide those resources to women and to raise public awareness about uh, how gender can complicate uh, prosecution, specifically of women and girls. And the second thing that we do is really represent uh, incarcerated women and girls as a class, looking at things connected to uh, sexual violence in prison, jails, and other kind of detention facilities, uh, looking at issues connected to health, safety, and welfare, those kinds of things that are specific to incarcerated women. So we take up both of those issues, broadly speaking. Was there a flashpoint that started the organization? One case or something like that? Well, for I'm a researcher and, uh, you know, most of my research career has been studying the twists and turns of mass incarceration. I I kind of developed as a scholar over the same, uh, you know, three decade trajectory And um, notably, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate of women anywhere in the world and anywhere in history. And so one of the first things that I was interested in as a scholar is what's driving that? Are women somehow becoming more involved in crime than they ever have been historically? And the answer to that question is no. Women's crime participation remains uh, very low. And women, uh, when they do get involved in crime, tend to be involved in nonviolent, non-serious uh, types of offenses. However, the the number of women that we sent to prison exploded. And so um, uh, that is almost entirely driven by policies and practices connected to the war on drugs. So that was sort of the one observation just from the data. And over the course of my research career, as America, as the American public became more aware of mass incarceration and problematizing mass incarceration, what it does in terms of our taxpayer dollars, what it does or doesn't do in terms of public safety. Of course, there's been a call to uh, to not rely on prisons to solve our various social problems like poverty and like drug addiction. And so we've seen decreases in the size of the nation's prison population. However, those decreases are because we've released more men from prison. When you actually disaggregate by gender, the number of women in prison has been rising over the same period that we've been trying to shrink the footprint of the prison system. From my perspective, 
being fully aware of the kind of crimes that women are convicted of, I couldn't understand why women weren't sort of the first group to benefit from justice reform efforts. And, um, and very quickly, the answer is because they are overlooked by policymakers, and they also tend to be overlooked by uh, justice reform advocates on all sides of the spectrum. And so that really galvanized me to create a nonprofit that was de- dedicated specifically to the issues that they faced and, and to the circumstances under which they found themselves uh, in prison in the first place. Is there a reason why women are overlooked in all these ways you've talked about in the system? Is it just baked in misogyny that, you know, we see in so many other things? Is there anything in the data or is it just uh, most of the people driving policy are men and they just kind of can't think? I don't even want to say outside the box because it's not that difficult, but kind of outside their lane. I think historically, women have always been less than 10 percent of the prison population. At some moments in time in the U.S., they're less than 5% of the prison population. And so some of it has to just do with an economy of scale. They tend to be overlooked because they just don't have the numbers. Here in Philadelphia, in Eastern State, the very first penitentiary in the U.S., women would starve to death uh, because they would be kept in attic spaces in the penitentiary to keep them away from incarcerated men. And wardens and, and guards would simply forget they were there. And and so I think, you know, that's kind of a, a snapshot of how we treat that culturally, that we, that we forget uh, that so many women are incarcerated. And, and then I do think that there is a, a misogynistic element to it where the, that women who are charged with criminal offenses are often seen as uh, sort of much more problematic from a moral perspective than men. I think there's a tendency to regard men as being, you know, sort of street entrepreneurs, but women as abandoning, you know, gendered responsibilities around family and uh, caretaking of children, all of that. So I I think that there is a greater stigma associated for women than there is uh, for men. So talk to me a little bit about the work you and your organization do. Like I, I say this, there is obviously not the average day with something like this, but are you pursuing, are you looking for, for women to try to, to help? Uh, are people coming to you? Is it kind of a little bit of both? Kind of what goes into it all? It's a little bit of both. You know, one of the things that I noticed, you know, within the last couple of years is that uh, under our current district attorney, we've had a number of exonerations, I should say high quality, urgent exonerations. And, uh, and Krasner created a conviction integrity unit. Now that was, there was a conviction integrity unit under our previous district attorney. It didn't get a lot of use, um, but that unit has been doing phenomenal work over the last couple of years. And yet we had not had a single woman exoneree. And I knew from all the time that I have spent in the prisons that there are women who are absolutely both legally and factually innocent of the crimes that they've been convicted of. And it, it, some of the work that, of Justice Project in the city of Philadelphia has been showing that the absence of, of exonerations for women isn't because their cases lack merit. It is because there's no outreach or very little outreach to the institutions where women are incarcerated. There's almost nothing in terms of resources. And so one of the things that we were doing, are doing, is trying to get that first exoneration. And I. I'm hopeful that we are very, very close uh, 
in the case of India Spellman, India Spellman was uh, convicted with a 14-year-old co-defendant of a robbery and then a murder. Um, and she has done over, uh, I think she has done about 12 years at this point. India Spellman was never even there. Uh, the 14-year-old committed this these two crimes back-to-back in an August afternoon with an older woman. And we're absolutely certain of his guilt. He had a, a really distinctive facial tattoo that a number of witnesses uh, commented on. And he went into police and, and simply said that the that his co-defendant was India Spellman. Well, India Spellman was home with her grandfather, a retired police officer, and her father that day. She was on her computer doing stuff on Facebook. She was on a, a phone call at the time of the shooting. However, <laughs> police went after her anyway. Um, and they beat a confession out of her, even though they had those phone records. So it has taken all of this time to get. So this should be a, a really easy open and shut case. There's a series of things that went wrong at trial. Notably, her trial attorney didn't call her alibi witnesses. So the jury never heard from them. But this should have been over and done on appeal quickly. It hasn't been, and it hasn't been because of a of a resource issue. Uh, so Conviction Integrity has that case now. We work very, very hard to get that case in front of them because, as you can imagine, they have over a thousand cases uh, wh- where people are saying, "Listen, I'm I'm factually innocent." Uh, do an investigation. Uh, so, so we're very hopeful that uh, that we will get an exoneration for India, and that in so doing it'll open up some interest into some other cases where women have been, in essence, victims of malicious prosecution and police misconduct. How frustrating can this work be? Because you are trying to maneuver within a system that doesn't like to admit it's made a mistake and will actively work to not say we were wrong. And I don't mean that that's not Philadelphia, that's nationwide. Like, so how much are you, you know, punching upwards and running uphill uh, just to kind of do basic investigative things like that? Right. And, and, you know, once you have a conviction, everything else going forward is stacked against you, which is why I tell people all the time, you know, you got to get the best attorney you can get at the beginning and not count on the appeals process. And, and furthermore, you really shouldn't be making statements to police even at the start of an investigation. And in so many of our cases, uh, you know, we have clients that regarded themselves as witnesses and things turned very quickly in that interrogation room. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it's, it's a really difficult process. Uh, it's a process that takes an enormous amount of resources. And even then, uh, you know, without uh, prosecutors and uh, police officers being willing to disclose some files and therefore, you know, creating layers of transparency. Some of these are almost impossible. And and in some of our cases, we actually pursue commutation, which is uh, seeking relief from a sentence from uh, in Pennsylvania to the Board of Pardons and ultimately the governor's office because uh, the cost of an, the cost of actually getting an exoneration is uh, too great for us to mobilize the resources for, or because the trail has gone dead. Witnesses have died, items of evidence have gone missing, 
and there just seems to be no clear route. And so in some of our cases, we think even though commutations are sort of like being struck by lightning, they're relatively rare, or they're very rare in Pennsylvania. We still pursue that because the appeals process is so, so onerous. We need to take a break. We will continue our conversation about the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls with Dr. Jill McCorkle right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back continuing our conversation with Dr. Jill McCorkle. I talk about how difficult this work is just following your group on Twitter. You guys have been close specifically, I think, with India Spellman a couple times and the it seems like it's just the bureaucracy you know, kind of vomits up something that doesn't happen or somebody doesn't show up or whatever it is. Aside from the how hard is the work, just how emotional is to work to deal with. We talk about walking uphill. That's one thing when you're talking about an intellectual exercise and paperwork and stuff like that. You know, when you're talking to a human being and the family and someone who's gone through what somebody like India Spellman has gone through, and you have to go in and say, you know, they deny or they pushed it off for another three months and stuff like that. How emotional is all this? It's it's devastating. Uh, and, you know, family members, uh, the person who's incarcerated, uh, the general public, when they're made aware of the case and they they get invested in the case are, you know, looking for a concrete. OK, this is going to happen on this date. And, you know, court delays can be six months. Uh, we're fortunate that uh, the delays that we've had more recently, this judge has, has, uh, and I'm saying this as, uh, you know, an advocate, not as India Spellman, who has to sit in uh, on State Road, the Philadelphia jail through the summer months where it's unbearable in there. Um, but this judge has been, has kept those delays, relatively speaking, short compared to other kind of delays that we see in the court system. But, uh, you know, uh, each time family members are uh, taking off work, using up vacation days, uh, trying to prepare the residents, trying to, to get clothing together and, and everything that they need to bring their child home. And then we get hit with another delay. And I, I often feel that the courtroom work group, uh, you know, judges, attorneys uh, aren't exposed to that as much as I am. And as, as much as, uh, you know, the other volunteers that I work with and in the case of uh, COVID, you know, you, we have a client that is has, you know, serious medical issues and is in her 60s. And we've hit in that particular case, it's a commutation case, but we've hit delay after delay in getting her to her hearing. And we've been terrified that uh, she's going to, you know, be seriously ill uh, or worse in the interim as we're trying to to get to the hearing itself. And so um, absolutely, these cases are, in my mind, it, it is incredibly cruel, uh, particularly to the family members. A, a lot of the incarcerated clients we work with are, are really strong, have, have sort of mastered the art of uh, patience and a, and a kind of zen when it comes to dealing with prison bureaucracies and court bureaucracies. Uh, but it, it is just uh, devastating for family members. And, and in India's case, she's got older family members who are, who are just, who are showing up to court. Um, and I worry about them getting infected in court. Um, so every time we're in there, I have kind of layers of, of concern. When you're doing this kind of work and there is so, so much of it is disappointment, frustration. 
there is very little to celebrate. How do you, people that work and volunteer, whatever, just not get overwhelmed with the system and how intractable it can be, you know, when when you're not getting really anything to kind of hang your hat on uh, most days? I think that's the hardest thing for my Villanova students to uh, come to terms with because it's new for them. And they, and, and so I, um, I do a wrongful conviction seminar where we work on cases in class. And then a number of my interns are my students. They get very, very invested in uh, our clients. They get very invested in relationships with family members and loved ones. Uh, but, you know, they're just learning about the court system. And so it, for them, their exposure is television and movies. So they think things are going to happen really quickly. And, uh, and of course, it can be years and the wins are so few and far between. And, um, and it's a tough lesson to be witnessing them learning about uh, because they are always uh, sort of when they start researching the case, they're usually outraged uh, because uh, the investigation is so flawed or, or, you know, there's clear violations of uh, constitutional protections in court. And so the students think like, well, here it is, like, you know, here's the the flaming red flag. Uh, let's get this person out. And it just, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, for myself, I do get burned out, but I think the, the sustenance is that it's the right thing to do. Uh, and it is also, uh, for all of our clients, having someone who is just taking the time to investigate their case, uh, or, you know, if we decide to take a case saying, we believe you, I can't tell you how incredible it is to get the gratitude on the part of the person that we're working on behalf of. And, and I'm so aware of, uh, of being alone in that endeavor. And, um, and so that's kind of the, the fuel for me is letting this person know that they, that they're not forgotten, uh, and that, and that I do believe them. That kind of connection is is my gasoline, I guess. I mentioned how intractable, and it's a it's a system that doesn't want to admit it's wrong. But you do. You mentioned DA Larry Krasner. You know, is someone who is taking much more of a look at this, kind of basing a lot on over getting the wrongfully convicted out of jail and and not pursuing certain things. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman has made pardons something that are talked about statewide that I don't ever remember them being front and center. By no means is it, I'm not trying to say this is a panacea, but are we starting to see people in the right positions understand that this isn't 100% that a lot of people are falling through the cracks and could we see over the next 5, 10, 15 years, if we keep going in this direction, some real reforms uh, to, to make this a little easier? I hope so. One of the things that when, when I uh, speak to the general public, it's really important for me to hammer this home. It doesn't serve public safety by having the wrong person in prison. You know, the person in India Spellman's case who murdered an 87-year-old World War II veteran has been on the streets for 12 years, presumably. I don't know who the person is, but I know it's not India Spellman. And so, um, you know, the, the sort of tendency of the system not to make sure that they got it right, or worse, getting defensive when it's been proved 
that they got it wrong undermines public safety, um, undermines the, 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 our efforts to curb and reduce crime. Um, and so, you know, if, if people understand that, that they're not going to get convicted, that we lose the deterrent element. So um, I, I think actually, for all the critique of Krasner, uh, it's really important that he does do these exonerations. And, and P.S., uh, being on being on the other end of this, trying to get an exa- an exoneration from this DA has been incredibly difficult because they are going through every single detail of the case. And if there's a missing element, you're not going to get the exoneration. Uh, and I think that that's something that the the general public doesn't know or understand. Um, and I also think that the general public doesn't know or understand why the exonerations are so important because they are performing a crime-fighting function. Uh, So uh, there's that part. I think the other part with um, pardons and Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, which is really crucial to understand, is that Pennsylvania has an aging uh, prisoner population. Almost a quarter of our prison population is over the age of 50. And the cost of incarcerating people over the age of 50 goes up exponentially. So in the budget hearings that just were a couple months ago, everyone is looking at the same numbers and everyone in those budget hearings, regardless of their party, is acknowledging this is a very real problem. But when it comes to the campaign trail, right, it's, it's sort of a different uh, rhetoric. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, that Fetterman has been trying to do is look at some of these cases, particularly of people who are of advanced age who uh, were, you know, caught in certain crime events where they were not necessarily, in fact, most, the vast majority weren't shooters in their cases. They were people who uh, might have played a, a relatively minor or tertiary role, uh, but, you know, get nailed because they were all part of the same crime event. And maybe they didn't uh, name names in the way that police and prosecutors might have wanted them to. And so, um, you know, I think it is one way that Fetterman is trying to solve the issue around a budget crisis and acknowledging what criminologists have known forever, which is very old people don't commit crimes. Uh, crimes are committed by people, you know, when they're teenagers and in their 20s for the most part. And it's certainly not saying that, you know, from Fetterman's perspective or anybody else's that everyone should be out. But uh, certainly we have to kind of repair some of the excesses that we engaged in over the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And my final question, people hear this conversation, uh, is there a way they can help Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls, it, even if it's just reaching out, showing like whatever, is there, you know, what can they do? Um, absolutely. You can follow us on social media. Uh, we are Philly Justice Project on Instagram and we're Justice Girls on Twitter. Um, we rely entirely on individual donations to do this work. And, and what those donations pay for is uh, trial transcripts, which usually cost about $1,000 a pop. Um, I take the students out to uh, the prisons where we do uh, interviews with people. Uh, we hire private investigators. We put money toward uh, legal defenses. And, you know, in those cases, we vet all of our cases. And so um, before we take a case, we have to have a high degree of confidence that something went wrong in it. And so, uh, you know, all those dollars go directly to that. There is, there, we have no salaried people at Justice Project. I 
uh, donate my time and my my students donate theirs. So donations are great. If you want to buy merch, we've got merch for sale, which is available on the website. Um, and absolutely, we put action items on to, to sign petitions on behalf of our clients. Uh, Sylvia Boykin's story is out right now on uh, wrong, Wrongful Conviction podcast with uh, Maggie Freeling and Jason Flom. Uh, so, you know, feel free to learn more about our cases and and um, and get involved. And about how many cases are you involved with right now? We have about like at any given moment, we have between 10 and 12, which arguably even that is, is a little bit too high, given that we don't have, uh, you know, any full or part time staff members. But because of we, we try to um, schedule them based on court calendars. And so, you know, some cases are kind of dormant for a while while we're just kind of waiting for something to work its way through the system. And so that's that's approximately how many cases that we work on one on one. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.